help to you and a help to me as well if you turn to page 1083 in the Bible, so that reading from John chapter 15 uh, that we had. There's a blue uh, handout as well that hopefully you'll have got along with the service sheet. Uh, page 1083. Uh, and while we find that, let me pray for us as we begin. Earlier on we sang, My Lord and God, you are so rich in mercy. Mere words alone are not sufficient thanks. So take my life, transform, renew and change me. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do that work. As we come before your word now, we ask that you would speak to us and that speaking you would transform, renew and change us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, last week, uh, if you were with us, we looked at the beginning of chapter 15 and we saw Jesus offer us the key to a life worth living. And we all want our lives to mean something, uh, to be fruitful, in Jesus' language here. And in John 15, Jesus says that he is the one we need. Like branches to their vine, so if we remain in Jesus, we will bear fruit. Uh, We will be changed by God, as that song uh, we sung earlier talks. Uh, So that what we do in this life has an enduring and eternal value. Or also in verse 11, so that our joy may be complete. Complete joy, a fruitful life, a life worth living. But what does it look like? What makes a life worthy? What would be enough for you? Uh, Open up a newspaper any day to the obituaries and you'll see what our culture's answers are. Whose lives have been significant enough to warrant a mention? There aren't many criteria. Uh, There are the famous, uh, this week particularly Natasha Richardson, uh, with her death following the skiing accident. Uh, Tomorrow, no doubt, Jay Goody will feature prominently. Uh, But then as well, there are are others. There are those who have been experts uh, in their different fields. This week, uh, there's an Oxford historian and there's uh, an influential scholar to do with the scientific revolution and the early royal society, uh, the experts. Well, there are others too. There are those still uh, who distinguished themselves in World War II and who are remembered for their bravery and leadership in those days, a squadron leader, particularly in that paper that I picked up. And then there are those who are remembered for their work for good causes and philanthropy, fame, academic distinction, leadership, bravery, charity. Those would be enough to earn you a few column inches, maybe even a photo. But is it enough for you Would those things bring us complete joy? Are those achievements or others like them what life is all about? Of course, not many of us will make it uh, onto these pages. Uh, But even so, perhaps we would say it isn't so much our achievements uh, that we look to. Uh, It's more our relationships that hold the key to joy and fulfilment, to a life worth living. Family and friends who loved us and will remember us are the legacy we want when we're gone. And they're the primary source of contentment and happiness in our lives today. 
And yet even there, what lasting value do our relationships have once we are gone? Death, when it comes, puts an end to them all. And so most of us will be forgotten by the end of this century. Psalm 103 in the Bible captures the point. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. Our human achievements and relationships may be good things, but they're not enough, says Jesus. Not enough for complete joy. Not enough for life to have the enduring and eternal value that Jesus promises to his followers. No, instead Jesus points us to the work that he can do in us. And it involves relationship and achievement, but both of them centred on him. He does a work of relationship in us as he calls us his friends. Friends for eternal life. And he does a work of achievement as well as he transforms us by the Holy Spirit so that we bear fruit. In verse 16, fruit that will last. Friendship with God and transformation by God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's what he offers to us. Uh, But it is important that we see how those two go together. Uh, On the handout, on the sort of diagrammy side of it, uh, you'll see at the top the the diagrams we had last week to try to illustrate this, that the top graph talks about our friendship with God, our status before him, and how at conversion, when we become Christians, uh, we move from being his enemies to being his friends. It is instant and it is total because it relies not on us but instead on the finished work of Jesus and his death on the cross for us. In dying for our sins, Jesus has saved us. When we trust him, we are put right with God and we are made his friends forever. But when that happens, another process kicks in as well. And that's the bottom uh, graph there, our transformation. When we become Christians, God starts, uh, well, well, what Jesus describes in chapter 15 here, as pruning. He starts to, to work at us so that we will become more and more fruitful. He starts to transform us so that we become more like Christ as we seek to follow him. Now, it's not a smooth process. Uh, There are the bumps, the ups and downs of our struggle against sin in the Christian life. But you always get both graphs together. God gives us both salvation through Jesus' death on the cross and transformation through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's very important because it's so easy to get that link wrong in our minds. And so you can see there that... uh, I put down two common mistakes that people can make. I've imaginatively labelled them mistake one and mistake two. Um, Let's take number one first. Mistake one is to think that I need to transform myself so that God will then accept me. It's to think that I earn friendship with God. That to be a Christian is to be good enough for God. 
to somehow exceed the pass mark of holiness. And only once I reach that level of goodness will God then accept me as his friend. If I do this, then God will do this. I think if we went and stopped at an average person at Meadowhall one day and asked them what a Christian was, they would describe this mistake. Time and again when I talk with people who aren't yet Christians, I find myself having to say that being a Christian is not about being good. Instead it's about realising that we're not good. That if it was up to us, then we'd never be friends with God. Never reach his standards. No, instead we need the forgiveness that Jesus' death brings. No, says Jesus, verse 16 of our passage, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. You see the order? He chooses us first. He makes us God's friends and then appoints us to go and bear fruit. God saves us first. And then he transforms us. If you're a Christian here tonight, then I would hope that you recognise the problem of mistake one. For us, I think we're more prone to the other mistake, mistake two. And that is where we put a dividing line in our minds between those two graphs. We know that our friendship with God is something he has done for us. Through Jesus and the cross. That's his initiative. And we're thankful for it. We depend on it. And yet then when it comes to the day to day. When it comes to transformation. To our obedience in following Jesus. We start to think that that bit's all up to us. It's our efforts alone. Perhaps as though we think that God has wiped the slate clean. Removing our past mistakes, the the way that we've ignored and rejected him, the the way we failed to love others as we should. But having wiped the slate clean, God then just tells us to try harder next time. And with that comes pride when we're doing well and doubt when we're not. But no, both our friendship and transformation are first and foremost God's work. God saves us and God changes us. Friendship and transformation, relationship and achievements. They are what makes a life worth living. They can bring us complete joy and they are what Jesus offers to us. And so let's see how Jesus describes them here. First, uh, friendship. Now, what does that mean? What is a friend? For some of us, I imagine it's quite a weak word. It doesn't really mean very much. So that anyone they come into regular contact with is a friend. Perhaps you've got hundreds of friends, at least if Facebook is to be believed. Um, For others, though, no, they'll reserve the term friend for much deeper relationships, such that they would say they've only had a a handful of true friends through life. It doesn't really matter how we use the term. I don't know where you fall on that scale, but in the Bible, to be a friend is a mark of real closeness. And to be a friend of God is extraordinary. 
So in the Old Testament, it is one of the highest descriptions of Abraham that he was God's friend. Or on Mount Sinai, when God spoke to Moses, singled out out of the whole nation of Israel to be a representative, we're we're told in Exodus 33 that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. To be a friend of God is extraordinary. And yet it is not reserved for Old Testament greats. No, Jesus was to become known as a friend of sinners. A friendship for which he was willing to lay down his own life. Uh, The next heading on the sheet there. Friendship with God is being loved by Jesus. Have a look with me at verse 12. Jesus said, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. That's the mark of friendship with God, that Jesus is willing to die for us. Uh, When Jesus talks of love here, it's not the soppy love of the romantic comedy with with soft music playing in the background. No, instead it is love to the sound of hammer and nails, a crowd's rage, a savage beating. It is the sacrificial love of the cross. Perhaps there are some here tonight for whom God feels distant. Uh, Maybe he always has. Let me ask you to look again at the cross. Look again at where God has shown his friendship to us. Where he has expressed his love for you. Friendship with God comes from being loved by Jesus. Uh, But also here, it is knowing his plan. See verse 15? I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Look, in one sense, it would be amazing enough for us to be called Jesus' servants, wouldn't it? After all, we deserve to be his enemies. We start out his enemies. Left to our own devices, if we ignore and reject God, when we don't live up to his standards, we deserve his guilty verdict and his punishment. What a turnaround it would be for us to no longer be God's enemies, but now to be his servants. And yet God does much more even than that. Because here he confides in us. In verse 15 there, the difference between a servant and a friend is that the servant doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know his master's business. But God reveals his purposes to us. He lets us in on his plan through his word that is revealed. We all love to be let in on, on a secret, don't we? When we're involved in doing something, don't we love to see how it fits into the bigger picture? So that we see the purpose behind it? Well here, God lets us in on the secret of history. And he involves us in the big picture of what life is all about. And of what the future holds. And again, Jesus is at the centre of that. God's plan is that in Jesus he is bringing people to be part of his kingdom. People who will know him 
and enjoy eternal life with him, who will praise and glorify him forever. And he's laid it all out for us in his word. Do you realise that? When you open up the Bible, do you have that sense of anticipation that knows you are being included in the secret of life itself? Uh, We'll need his help to understand it, but that help is given as the Holy Spirit who once inspired the men who wrote it now illumines our hearts so that we see and understand. Do you realise that every time we read it? God is demonstrating his friendship to you disclosing his plan, saying, come and see. Do you marvel at the privilege of having it within arm's reach? Or do we keep it at arm's reach? Uh, Do we consign it to the shelf where it will attract dust, but seldom our attention? If we want a life worth living, if you want to have the complete joy that Jesus speaks of, Oh, then we need to look to the friendship that God provides. Friendship forged by Jesus' death on the cross for us. His love shown, bringing forgiveness. And friendship expressed through Jesus' word to us, letting us in on his plan and purposes. Friendship with God the first thing on offer, and then secondly, transformation. The transformation that God brings so that our lives are fruitful. On the one hand, that will mean loving like Jesus. See again verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Does that surprise you? Jesus says here that the hallmark of a joyful life, a life worth living, is that we give up our lives. It's the death of self-interest. God wants to transform me so that I love fellow Christians with the sort of sacrificial love which Jesus has shown for me. And wouldn't it be great if we were all doing that for each other. Uh, This term, I'm in the process of meeting up with everyone who's thinking about coming on the church plants uh, that we're planning. And one one of the things that I've said to all of them is that for everyone who joins the team, our attitude each Sunday as we come to church will need to be that we're coming not for what we can get out of it, but because we want to come to serve the others who will be there. And if we're all like that, just think how welcoming we'll be as a church. Every newcomer will be warmly greeted because we won't be selfishly sticking with the people we know. Everyone on their own afterwards over coffee will be included in a conversation with brothers and sisters because we'll all be on the lookout to make people feel at home. If we were all like that in small groups during the week when we meet up to discuss and to pray, think how encouraging they'd be. Places of honesty and support, of family love. Loving like Jesus means the death of self-interest. 
It means putting others first. It means dying myself for the sake of them. And yet it brings with it complete joy. I guess also from Jesus' example, it will mean taking the initiative in love. Remember that diagram at the start. First God saves us. First God shows his love to us in sending Jesus to die for us, to make us his friends before any work of transformation begins. And yet so often the the love that we show comes with a price tag. We'll love people only when they're good enough or when we get something out of it in return. And when people are hard work, we'll go so far, but then no further. As though we're willing to extend people a bit of, of love credit putting ourselves out for them for a while, but always keeping a mental record of how much they owe us in return. And if the time comes we realise it will never be repaid, uh, we stop. They were too much effort, too much like hard work. We never got anything back. I think of someone from a church I was at in the past. Uh, They began serving in one particular area of the life of the church. Three weeks in, they received a letter from one individual in the congregation picking holes in some of what they'd done. The letter was no credit to the one who wrote it, uh, but it was too late. Uh, The person stopped serving immediately. And when I went to see them, they said this, "I I don't need this. It's not like I'm being paid to do it. Now, does our love, does our service come with a price tag in our minds like that? So that if it's tough, when it's tough, if we don't get the recognition or response that we think we've earned, then we'll stop. If so, we need to think again of the cross. Do you think Jesus went to the cross for you because it paid well? Or for what he could get out of it? No. No, We need to be transformed by Jesus, transformed by his love for us so that we love as he does and then finally we need to be transformed so that we will join his plan verse 16 again you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit fruit that will last then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name If you're a Christian here today, then God's plan involves you. He has chosen us and appointed us to go and bear fruit. And what is that fruit? Well, in verse 8 that we looked at last week, it's anything that leads to the Father's glory. To God being glorified for who he is and for what life with him is. In that respect, it's every aspect of godliness and faith. It is uh, loving each other, verse 17, it's repeated again, which is broad enough in its scope and yet deep enough in its application to cover the whole of life. Uh, The fruit then is general godliness and obedience and yet I think particularly in view here is the fruit of conversions, of new people coming to know the Lord. Let me explain why I think that. Uh, For a start, Jesus says here that he has appointed his followers to go and bear fruit. 
And yet most aspects of inner godliness don't require us to go anywhere. Not to go out into the world. And yet evangelism certainly does. But then also when Jesus says there that he wants them to bear fruit that will last, the word for last is the same as the word for remain that we saw earlier in the chapter. Fruit that will remain in Jesus. Like branches to the vine, it's people. People who trust in Jesus' death for them. New Christians brought to the cross who remain trusting it forever. Now that is something of enduring and eternal value, isn't it? To think that our lives can play a part in bringing other people into this friendship with God. A friendship which comes with transformation. It's one thing to be a friend, to to know God's plan. It's even greater, isn't it, to be part of it. For God to, to draw us in so that we can be involved with him in bringing it to fruition. And if we will join in with this plan, if we will make Jesus' will for our lives, our will for our lives, then verse 16 ends with a great promise for us. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I wonder, are you making the most of that promise? Once we join in with God's plan, anything that we ask, he will give us. Isn't that astonishing? What are you praying for at the moment? That would be a great question for us to ask each other this week, wouldn't it? What are you praying for? Are you confident that God is your friend who is ready to hear your prayers? Are you confident that you know his business? That he's included and involved you in his plans? Are you confident that this work of transformation in our lives is not our work to do on our own but it is God's work as he lives in us by his spirit so that we can ask him anything anything that fulfills this goal of growing in godliness and bringing people to know him that's what it is for our request to be in Jesus' name and he will answer I am the vine says Jesus you are the branches If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. That is life. That is a life worth living. A life of enduring and eternal value. Where through Jesus we enjoy friendship with God. As we remain in Jesus, we are transformed by God, growing like Jesus in his sacrificial love and joining in his plan and purpose that one day we'll see people from every nation, tribe and language standing before him, declaring his praise as the one who was slain for us and yet who reigns forever. Let's pray together.